Hi, it's Jamie. And I'm Portia. And we are Just Two Pearls. Join us for Adventures in Pearls. Here is a reflection from feminist icon, Audre Lorde. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us to temporarily beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. And Pearl, the reason why I share that reflection today is because on this episode, we are going to be celebrating all things womanism and black feminism. And Audre Lorde was truly an icon, intellectual scholar who did so much work in terms of feminism and black feminism and in terms of black women in the academy. She was a trailblazing woman in more ways than one. And so we are super excited to share this episode with you today. It's going to have a slightly different format than usual. We're going to hear from Melanie C. Jones, who we've heard from before. Portia will reintroduce her in just a few minutes. Um, But she is one of the co-founders of the Millennial Womanism Project. And so she's going to kind of talk with us a little bit about the current shape and form that womanism has taken in 2018. Then I'm going to share a bit of a history of at least the contemporary black feminist movement. It's a lot longer than 40 years, but 40 years ago is the anniversary of the Combahee River Collective, which was a black feminist manifesto. So I'm going to talk about black feminism over the past 40 years. And then Portia's going to kind of wrap us up at the end of the episode, and she's going to explain to all of our listeners the ways that we can use some of the academic theory that Melanie is going to be talking about and that I'm going to share with you and the ways that we can really apply it to our lives as people of faith, as uh, women who are living social lives, as women who are working, and how we can really do the work of liberation in our lives, in our communities, and in our world. We are so glad to have Melanie back, and so here's a little bit more about her. The Reverend Melanie C. Jones is a womanist, ethicist, millennial preacher, and intellectual activist. As a third-generation Baptist preacher, Reverend Melanie is the youngest ordained clergywoman in its 49-year-old history at South Suburban Missionary Baptist Church of Harvey, Illinois. She served as associate minister leading the women's ministry under the leadership of the dynamic duo, Pastor Michael and co-pastor Annette Jones. Reverend Melanie is a thinking woman of faith advocating for social transformation in the academy, church, and global community. She is a Doctor of Philosophy candidate at Chicago Theological Seminary, studying ethics, theology, and culture. Her doctoral dissertation is entitled, Up Against a Crooked Gospel, Black Women's Bodies and the Politics of Character in Religion and Society, which interrogates black women's bodies, politics, and moral formation, utilizing approaches in womanist theological ethics and black aesthetics. Reverend Melanie is also a visiting instructor of ethics, theology, and culture at Wright Divinity School of Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas. And she's also the co-visionary alongside with Liz S. Alexander of the Millennial Womanist Project, which is a collaborative movement towards sustainable initiatives for faith leaders and justice activists 
and advocates of today and tomorrow. And Reverend Melanie is also very committed to seeking justice and empowering women and girls in the community. She is also an emerging millennial voice with public platforms, and she actually has been featured on television and different radio outlets. We are so glad to have Reverend Melanie back with us, and if you want to find out more, you can visit her website at reverendmelanie.com. Hey, Pearls. This is Reverend Melanie. I'm a Ph.D. candidate at Chicago Theological Seminary, a visiting instructor in ethics, theology, and culture at Bright Divinity School, and the co-creative of the Millennial Womanism Project. It's always a pleasure to be a part of and support the work of two amazing Black millennial women, Jamie and Portia. So thank you for inviting me to talk a little bit about academic womanism, its origins, current promise, and future iterations. The term womanist comes from the Black idiomatic expression, you acting womanish, of a mother speaking to her girl child and is derived from Black Southern folk culture. Alice Walker, a brilliant poet and novelist, most notably known for her Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Color Purple, put definition to the term womanist in her classic 1983 collection of essays, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, Womanist Prose. Walker's definition seeks to name the distinctive political aims of Black women beyond the white feminist scope in the 1980s. Though Walker's definition is my point of departure, I do want to make clear that the womanist paradigm has taken shape since the 1980s in multiple academic disciplines, including English. Here I'm thinking of Clonora Hudson Weems's Africana Womanism, literature in African womanism with Ogin Yemi and Afro political womanism in Kalinda Eden's work. In history, theater and film studies, communication and media studies, psychology, anthropology, social work, gender and sexuality studies, architecture and urban studies, and most notably religious studies, particularly ethics, theology, and biblical studies. I want to point folks to the 2006 The Womanist Reader Collection, edited by Laylee Phillips, as an excellent resource to engage early works of womanist thought of the first 25 years. The text includes articles from Walker, Hudson Weems, Oganyemi, and important Black feminist thinkers like social theorist Patricia Hill Collins' classic essay, What's in a Name, Womanism, Black Feminism, and Beyond, and poet and thinker Gary Lemons, To Be Black, Male, and Feminist, Making Womanist Space for Black Men. According to Laylee Phillips in her broad analysis of womanist thought, Phillips suggests womanism includes five central aims. First, it's anti-oppressionist, that it rallies against all forms and manners of oppression and supports the liberation of all humanity. That it's rooted second in vernacular, that it's inclusive and accessible to experiences of everyday folk in life. Third, that it's non-ideological, that it discourages rigidity and operates in a decentralized modality that maintains multi-ideological engagement and recognizes self-evaluation is not purely analytical, but holistic, effective, and spiritual. Fourth, that is communitarian, concerned with the collective well-being as the goal of social change. And fourth, that it is spiritualized, recognizes spiritual transcendence and connection with material life. Speaking as an emerging womanist theological ethicist, 
The Womanist Theological Enterprise is a 33-year-old collaborative discourse initiated by Black female theologians, ethicists, biblical scholars, historians, pastoral caregivers, religious leaders, and laity who take seriously the lived experience of Black women in theory and in praxis. While feminist theology rallied against patriarchy and domineering forces threatening women's experiences, some feminists, even into the 1970s, maintained a privileged blindness that ignored women's complex and contradicting identities, particularly race and class. Black liberation theology in its initial emergence in the 1960s and 70s, even with a quest for liberation of an oppressed African-American people, it failed to address issues concerning gender. Bold and daring Black women searching for a critically engaged academic dwelling place in the 1980s, rather than waiting on feminists or Black male liberationists to open the door of inclusion. They utilized their sociocultural realities, theological proclivities, and mother wit to build a solid foundation for a home of their own. Womanism is an audacious endeavor that engages Black women at its radically subjective center and involves all persons seeking justice. I named Jacqueline Grant, Katie Cannon, and Dolores Williams as the womanist trinity because these trailblazers were the first to articulate Black women's experiences at the center of their academic writing in theology and ethics. Beginning with Grant's 1979 article, Black Theology and the Black Woman, and moving to Katie Cannon's 1985 article, The Emergence of a Black Feminist Consciousness, wherein Cannon is the first to source Alice Walker's term womanist to confront oppressive hegemonic ideologies of racism, sexism, and classism that situate Black women's struggle. In the 1987 article, Womanist Theology, Black Women's Voices by Dolores Williams, Williams make the case that a Christian womanist theological method is informed by four intentions. That it's multi-theological, speaks to, with, and for multiple communities across social, political, and religious lines. That it's liturgical, that it critiques the thought, worship, action of the Black church with a womanist prophetic intention. That it's didactic, that it teaches new insights about moral life with an eye for justice, of Black women and survival of poor women, children, and men. And that it has a commitment um, to resourcing female imagery and metaphorical language in the construction of theology with the question that she asks, who do you say God is? Early womanist theology and ethics did not come without critiques as ethicist Cheryl Sanders in the 1989 Roundtable on Christian Ethics and Theology questioned whether Walker's term was appropriate for Christian womanists, given Alice Walker's 1981 use of the term womanist as synonymous with lesbian in connection to the narrative of the Black shaker Rebecca Jackson. In a different but related critique, Renee Hill, in her 1990s article, Who We Are for Each Other, critiqued early womanists for a missing engagement with sexuality as an analytical lens, and particularly eclipsing lesbian voices. Later critiques of womanist theology have addressed its Christocentricism and its heavy Christian leanings. 
I encourage folks to check out the documentaries on both YouTube. Uh, these include The Journey to Liberation, Theology, and What Manner of Woman Is This? To hear stories and excerpts of early thinkers and later generations of womanist thinkers. In a 2006 encyclopedia entry, Emily Towns makes the case that womanist theology has developed since Cannon's early work in multiple ways that it is concerned with an orientation to Black women's survival, an oppressive social order that is classes, races, and sexes, that it is a framework for interpreting and critiquing the role of the Black church, that it's an interrogation of and critique of Black churches' appropriation of scripture in oppressive ways, that it's a model for Black women's organizational strength, that it's a critique of the Black social stratification, that it's an advocacy for justice-based spirituality and the occlusion of ecological concerns, concern with healthcare, considers Black sexuality and the issue of work. That even as it melds theological and social scientific analysis with cultural studies, literary studies, and political economy, and it addresses public policy issues affecting African-American communities, end quote. In contemporary womanist scholarship, I think womanism is influenced by a number of streams, including but not limited to methodological pathways, the question of embodiment, queer experiences, eco-womanism, faith-based sexuality and religious media, African diasporic religions, including African traditional religions, Caribbean religions, um, Islam, humanism, and so forth pastoral theology and care, pedagogy, homiletics and preaching, class analysis with a focus on capitalism and neoliberalism, and of course, new waves in biblical interpretation. I want to point folks to a few important anthologies. These are uh, four that I think everyone should, should get access to, and those are Deeper Shades of Purple, Womanism in Religion and Society, edited by Stacey Boy Thomas. Ain't I a Womanist Too? Third Wave Womanist Thought, edited by Monica Coleman. I Found God in Me, a Womanist Biblical Hermeneutics Reader, edited by Mitzi Smith. And Womanist Interpretations of the Bible, Expanding the Discourse, edited by Vanessa Loveless and Gay Byron. The question of the moment is whether the womanist prophetic voice remains relevant. I contend that womanism jeopardizes its prophetic edge if and when it fails to translate its wisdom to Black women or all persons desiring to subvert multi-dimensional oppression in their religious communities and the world at large. Womanist methodologies must uphold its multi-dialogical, liturgical, and didactic intentions by fostering necessary exchange between the academy church and the broader society. Budding womanist scholars like myself are beckoned by our foremothers to not simply rely on the womanist legacy, but also advance the prophetic agenda in word and deed. I think womanists and black feminists are twin sisters. Our issues may not be identical, but our efforts unite maternally by our prophetic aim toward justice. As Alice Walker notes, womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender. Whatever the shade of purple, I agree with Walker that it pisses God off. 
to walk in a field or in my context, context down the halls of the academy and ignore the beauty of the color purple. In April of 1977, a trailblazing group of radical black feminists gathered together to create a black feminist manifesto. They called it the Combahee River Collective. Why do they call it the Combahee River Collective? Well, one of its authors, Barbara Smith, explains that they were studying Harriet Tubman and that she read a short biography about Harriet Tubman. And it talked about her having planned and led a raid on the Combahee River that freed over 750 people who were enslaved. So she explained that while she was with that group and they were planning together and considering what they might want to name themselves, what they might want to name their group, what they might want to call their future retreats, she recommended the name Combahee. Some of the other members, of course, had read the book or borrowed it from her. She told them about what happened at the Combahee River and they all agreed. Not only did they want to write a manifesto and call it the Combahee River Statement, they wanted to be the Combahee River Collective. They didn't want to name themselves after a person. They wanted to name themselves after an action, a political action. And that's what they did. And they didn't name themselves after just any political action. They named themselves after a political action that did the work of liberation for enslaved people. And in particular, I think we should note they named themselves after an act of liberation led by a black woman at a river. You see friends, black feminism is about liberation and is not about female superiority over men. It's not about emasculating. It's not even about sh shifting or changing gender roles or gender dynamics. You see, it's about political work. It's about taking those who have been oppressed, sidelined, marginalized, and placing them at the center, not only of our conversation, because conversation, after all, is just conversation, but really placing them at the center of our politics, of the political work that we do. I want to read to you a bit from the Combahee River Collective statement, as I said, written and shared in April of 1977. So 2017 was the 40 year anniversary of their statement. These women wrote, we are actively committed to struggling against racial, sexual, heterosexual, and class oppression, and see as our primary task, the development of integrated analysis and practice based upon the fact that the major systems of oppression are interlocking. So those were kind of the origins of what we today call intersectionality. You might have heard that term. It was coined, I believe, in the late 80s, early 90s by a legal scholar called Kimberly Crenshaw. And what she, the work she does with that term is to really elucidate the ways that in the legal, in the criminal justice system, black women were falling through the cracks. And she does the work of pulling black women out of those cracks and illuminating the fact that black women are oppressed not only because of our race on one hand, because of our gender on the other hand, 
Often, as many sociologists have pointed out, there's an experience of poverty, or at least an illusion of poverty in the black community that oppresses black women, and then much more for those who also belong to um, differing sexual orientations, for those who are disabled, for those who struggle in any way beyond just the constraints of race and gender. And black feminism does that work of pulling out those women, of seeing those women, and trying to do the work of liberation. But you see, the contemporary movement for black feminism is just that. It is a contemporary movement, and it has historical origins. And part of the work of black feminists, especially those of us who are in the academy, is to do the work of elucidating the ways that black feminism has always been present in the American context. From the first time we were brought here in chains, we started to do that work of liberation. And we know certain black feminists well, right? We know um, Harriet Tubman. We know Sojourner Truth. We know Holly Murray. We know Ida B. Wells Barnett, right? These are the names that we know. We know Ella Baker, right? We know Fannie Lou Hamer. But what about all of those names that fall through the cracks? All those women that we don't know, those hundreds, and I would say even thousands of black women who in one way or another did black feminist work. How so? First of all, they banded together. Second of all, they did the work of liberation. And that's what it's all about. They didn't allow their second class citizen status to allow them or to allow their people to remain second class citizens. Now, what I think is super interesting about the contemporary movement for black feminism, in a lot of ways, there's a stereotype of black feminism as being separatist, as being something that's other, as being something that women are setting themselves apart. And yes, that has been part of what some black feminists have done, but I think that wasn't the intent of the original women who got together and who crafted this statement together, who did the painstaking work of laying out what it is to be a black feminist because at its roots, black feminism is about being a collective, right? They called it the Combahee River Collective. That's what they called their organization. So it's not about being separate from other women's groups that aren't black feminist groups. It's also not about being separate from the larger work of black liberation, which in a lot of cases means that we treat black men and white women as our allies, as our colleagues and supporters and friends and advocates in the work. It's not about separatism, it's about unity. So these women, they got together, they had retreats with the likes of Alice Walker, of course, who gave us the term womanism, with the likes of Patricia Hill Collins, the great black sociologist, um, with the likes of Angela Davis, um, who is both activist um, and well known for that, but also who is an excellent scholar and an excellent theorist of black female life in the Americas. But what I wanna point out is black feminism in the US was created as a movement that was by and for black women living in the US context, but they intended to have more far reaching impacts than that, and they have. This Combahee River Collective is useful to women the world over, especially those who are women of color feminist in other parts of the world. But even those who might be 
European, but who are oppressed because of their social class. And that's important to name, that black feminism isn't just about black women. It's about so much more than that. Certainly not just about the United States black woman. It's about so much more than that. Black feminism is a politic. It is an action. It is a way of moving forward. It is looking out into our world. It's about acknowledging those who are on the margins. And it's about looking at those people and not just talking about them, not just talking at them, but about making those people the center of our political axis. Black feminism is more than just a method, more than just a way of seeing the world. It's about so much more than even the kind of work that we do in the American context. It's about the larger movement for black liberation. Why? Because black women are black. Because black trans women are black. Because black women who are part of the LGBT community are black. Because black disabled people are black. So it's part of that larger movement for black liberation. But it's also part of the larger movement for human liberation. So you know the way you can put a black feminist politic or method into practice today? I want you to think about all those in our world who are marginalized, regardless of their skin color. Think about those who are marginalized, children who become victims of adult irresponsibility, the poor, the disabled. Think on these people. And instead of putting them on the outside, instead of making them people who you talk about, who you think of, who you theorize about, Move them to the center of your political axis. Start your politics from there. And what do we make of these things? Black feminism and womanism. I have seen on social media friendly debates and conversation on how do black women define themselves, personally speaking. Am I a black feminist or am I a womanist? I dare ask you, does it matter what your sister chooses to define herself? Can both disciplines live together in harmony as both place the experiences of black women at the center? I hear the argument where one can say, I'm a black feminist as opposed to a womanist because womanism has presented itself as a tradition rooted in a theological conversation. Sis, I hear you, but womanism isn't exclusively centered in theological context. I hear the argument where another may say, I'm a womanist as opposed to a black feminist because womanism was created with black women in mind, whereas black feminism is rooted in and emerges out of feminism, which is still raced by white women's experiences. Womanism is a response to feminism and it's not its daughter. Sis, I hear you too. But womanism isn't and shouldn't be positioned as superior to black feminism, but rather should be held in tension as sister disciplines. Birth with the same intention to keep black women with our truth, our culture, our names, our joy, our healing, our peace and our wholeness at the center. As a womanist pastoral practitioner of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
I would invite us to think about how black feminism and womanism work together in the practical sense. Regardless of your industry, whether it be law, entertainment, the arts, the academy, medicine, education, or in ministry, there is a place for these disciplines to come alive. For instance, black feminism and womanism are both disciplines to be studied, but yet they are also lifestyles. In this political climate, black feminism and womanism beckons us to stand up for justice. The days of sitting down and sitting back are long gone. We must speak truth to power in sharing our hashtag me too stories. We must speak truth to power in sharing our personal experiences as black women at work. We must speak truth to power in declaring that all black lives matter. Not just some black lives, but all black lives across gender, ethnicity, nationality, religion, sexual preference, education, and economic background. Black feminism and womanism beckons us not just to study the stories of women who get food stamps on the first of the month, but questions the systems that has made her dependent on them in the first place. It beckons us to critique the systems that leave black women and her communities broken while still creating space for her to feel whole and to be whole. They call us to believe beyond basic survival skills and cause us to flourish. Black feminism and womanism does not stop at the desire for us to be free, but moves us toward the hope that we deserve to experience liberation. And while we have yet to be liberated, we must do the work each and every day. And so we must call down to Washington and confront Congress. We must feed one another and clothe one another. We must provide shelter for one another and we must fight for one another. But we must also laugh with one another. For every tear, we need double the laughter. We must share in celebration in love and joy as a form of resistance just as it is a form of comfort. But most of all, black feminism and womanism cause us to be present, present in our communities, present with one another, and present with ourselves. And so, Pearls, it's time for that petty pearl. Don't you just ever get frustrated when you go to the grocery store and there are people in the line with all this stuff and the sign clearly indicates that it's 12 items or fewer, but yet they still want to get in that express line? Or how about those insane couponers who just coupon and are out here saving money? Now, I'm not hating on them saving money, but if you know you got 50 items and you've got 10,000 coupons, please do us all a favor. Do not get in that 12-item or express line. You know, I think we, all the grocery stores, need to invest in having a coupons-only line for the extreme couponers because it's just ridiculous. If I'm just trying to get my groceries and leave, you know what I'm saying, especially when it's toward the first of the month, you know what I'm saying, we're all just trying to get out. So grocery stores, whatever store you are, please, let's invest in having an extreme couponing line because it's getting by real ridiculous out here in these streets. we just all just trying to adult. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Just2Pearls. And you can email us at adventures at just2pearls.com. And remember, cultivate the pearl within you.